0: Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. After spending some time in the book of Psalms, we're going to hop back into the Gospel of Matthew, uh, catching up where we were last time we were in Matthew. Using one of the blue chair Bibles in front of you, uh, Matthew chapter 10 is on page 814. To begin our time, I want to be a little autobiographical and share from my past. Now, when you look at me, you probably don't think about skateboarding, but there was a season of my life from about 2001 to 2012 that if you knew me back then, you would often see me at skate parks. First, it began with the camp that I worked at. I've told many stories about that place, but our camp had two skate parks on their property, and we would have camps where the kids would skate for multiple hours a day and also doing BMX on top of that. We had skate and BMX instructors who very much did look the part of skateboarding and BMX. But as a non-counselor staff member, I would often be assigned to that group to hang out with them in the evenings and throughout the day. There was a time where I was convinced to go down one of the ramps, but after that I really just hung out and stood on my own two feet. But it was a really significant time in my life because I grew to appreciate especially the counselors that we hired to work with these kids. The, literally the only thing we often had in common was our faith. Our faith. We dressed completely differently, and even then I still had no tattoos or piercings like they did. I also learned that while it was a special gift for the skate kids to have counselors like them, there was also a place for me to minister to them even though we had so little in common. I think there's a lie that we tell ourselves that I need to be cool or I need to be like someone to minister to them. You see this a lot in youth groups at churches where I'm too old to work with the youth. No, just put that out of your brain. But again, there's a place for the skaters and the skate counselors, but also me who really never looked like them, acted like them, or honestly was any good at skateboarding. I didn't have to be like them to serve and care for them. But the second part of the story is that that experience as I was in college led to future ministry and future work. So later when I worked at a YMCA and seminary, which also had its own skate park, it gave me the confidence to speak with those students because I was familiar with them and people like them. I was even asked to lead a week of summer camp at that YMCA where I drove a group of skaters in a bus to a bunch of local skate parks. So it was me and like 20 skaters in this (laughs) YMCA bus. But then this also led to another chapter of ministry where I used a church van to drive skaters to local skate parks in our town back in Illinois. And that led to our church being a part of bringing a skate park to that community through leasing of part of the church's land to the local park district and in fact that skate park was on the front page of the newspaper the day lucy was born so we have that paper i tell you that story not so that now when you look at me you're like really skateboarding okay but i think it relates to our text let me explain why In the first part of our text today, we are introduced to the twelve disciples. And at the center of that description, I think, is a diversity of that group of twelve men. It wasn't their shared interests that united them, but rather their faith in Jesus. And I hope to make that really clear as we look in that description there. Again, the skate counselors and myself were united by our faith, not our commonality. But secondly, as we'll see in the second part of the passage, that this motley crew was sent out into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And like I shared, being with the skate guys, the counselors and the kids, empowered me to go out into the world and minister to that subculture and be comfortable speaking with them about the love of Jesus. So let's look at that first part, the naming of the disciples. You'll see that in verses 1 to 4, let's begin by reading verse 3. Follow along as I read. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, in the context of the book, this is a really important passage because what directly preceded this was Jesus' word saying, pray eagerly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray for people to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus. And then we see in the very next verse, Jesus answering his own command to pray. Matthew tells us about the first bunch of disciples that Jesus is going to send out couple things to note in this first verse. Number one, there are 12 disciples. Later, they'll be called apostles, and we'll get to that. But other parts of the New Testament, they are simply referred to as the 12. We should see in this an intentional connection to the Old Testament 12 tribes of Israel. And in one sense, Jesus is reconfiguring the people of God for the new era after his coming. Secondly, they're described as having authority over unclean spirits and every disease and every affliction. Now, it causes us to ask, why are these mentioned here and not preaching, which comes later in the text in verses 5 to 15? I think the best understanding of this is that a similar description was used of Jesus' early ministry to speak about God's plan finally being revealed in Jesus. Proof that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So the miracles of healing and and casting out demons were given as evidence to the people that Jesus truly is the promised Messiah. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The early ministry of the disciples was limited at first to the people of Israel. We'll see that later in the text. And the thrust of their message, especially early on, was that Jesus was, in fact, God's promised Savior from the Old Testament. And this introduction then leads into their naming, found in verses 2 through 4. Let's look at that. Verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. First thing I want you to notice there is that they are called apostles. And in the Bible, this can refer to those original 12 disciples, but we are also helped by the fact that that this term apostle could be used in a less technical sense to refer to messengers or missionaries or representatives. I think it's helpful because it's a good reminder to all of us that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a missionary to God's world. All of us are Jesus's representatives to his world. All of us in our own ways are sent out by God to spread that good news. But let's also look at the names and the descriptions chosen for them. And while it's true that all of the people listed here are Jewish men, I want you to see a real picture of Christian community here. I'm going to start with one that's not listed here but recorded elsewhere, just to give you a taste. So James and John are here called the sons of Zebedee, but elsewhere they are called the sons of Thunder. In addition to this, in talking about them being sons of Zebedee, we also know from other accounts that their business was successful enough to employ others. So they possibly had more money than the other disciples, comparatively. But I want you to think of this. Again, they're called the sons of thunder. What would it be like to live in a group of 13, right? Jesus and the 12. How many of you, especially you introverts out there, want to live with the thunder boys? Secondly, Simon Peter, he is described here as first, and that's not just to tell us that he's first in the list because that is obvious. Scholars help us to understand that this is probably a designation of leadership very early on. This group was not just a free-for-all. There were some early leadership structures that continued on after Jesus's ascension. But again, you have different dynamics. I want I want you to see these 12 guys as real people, right? And, and living life in the real world is that you have to answer to some people, right? So they had to answer to Peter. I don't know if that was always easy. Think about that as you read about Peter in the Bible, okay? Third thing, third pairing that I want you to notice is Matthew and Simon, Matthew is a tax collector. Simon is called the zealot. Let's talk about that. I want you to picture the early days of being together when one of your members used to work as a tax collector for the Roman government and another member is a part of a Jewish group committed to national independence and kicking the Romans out. You don't think there was friction in that relationship? (laughs) That maybe Matthew always walked behind Simon those first couple days? Life together is not always easy. But I want you to see even from the beginning, there was a diversity to the people of God even seen in these 12 people. There is a beauty to our diversity in the body of Christ that has always been there. And it creates its own challenges, but we know that God uses the diversity of his body for our good and for his glory. Right? Think of Paul's metaphor that the church is a body with different parts. And that in some ways in these descriptions, we see that the disciples lived that out. There were different parts. There were different personalities. there will always be some people that the only reason you're friends is Jesus. And that's healthy. Because where we get unhealthy is where we insist people must be like us for us to care for them. You should always have people in your life. You're never going to be best friends, right? But you care for them because... You are united by your common faith in Jesus. And if the disciples can do it, so can you. Let me make two more comments on people. Number one, Bartholomew. Bartholomew teaches us that Jesus loves his followers who are never famous. Now, we don't know much about Bartholomew if... As most scholars think, he is the same disciple called Nathanael in the Gospel of John. We don't gain much. Here's what we learn about Nathanael from John's Gospel added to Bartholomew listed here. Uh, He was a part of a list of disciples who fish after Jesus' resurrection. So that's something. He went fishing with other people. Tells you a lot. But he's also the disciple who makes fun of Nazareth. When he finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth. That's it. That's all we got on Bartholomew. But just because his future ministry is not written about in the book of Acts. Like Peter. Doesn't mean anything about the quality of his ministry. God has placed you where you are. And some people are put in the position of Peter. And some are put in the position of Bartholomew. God wants all of us to be faithful. And it doesn't mean he loves Peter more than Bartholomew. He loves us all and calls all of us to be faithful. Last thing I want to note here is Judas Iscariot is listed as the one who betrayed him. And one of the reasons I want to highlight that is to say this. Jesus knew the whole time what Judas would do. Jesus was not surprised by the events that led up to the cross. It wasn't that Judas and the Jewish leaders caught him off guard and therefore he died on the cross. He knew the whole time. And I think Matthew's inclusion of that fact here underscores that Jesus knew from the very first moment what Judas would do. And it's also important to remember that nobody guessed that Judas was the betrayer. Okay, they're all asking, is it me? Is it me? It wasn't as if he was in the corner brooding, wearing all black, like a betrayer and twisting his mustache. But I think it's helpful to remember all of this because it all these little dynamics and these descriptions, because it keeps us from turning the disciples into holy robots and not real people, Because then we say, well, I couldn't have the faith like them. I could never be like Peter. Listen, Peter was a normal guy. And if you don't want to pick Peter, pick Bartholomew, okay? And make fun of small towns called Nazareth. I don't know. But I also want you to see in that last description that they experienced the personal betrayal by Judas. And Jesus was truly betrayed. And so when you experience your betrayal, you know that Jesus' first followers and Jesus himself experienced that. Again, this description helps us remember that these disciples were real people who had real problems and had real challenges just like us. And we're called to the same thing, of being faithful followers of Jesus, being sent out into his world. And then what follows after that, and we're going to look at the first part today, are Jesus' instructions as he sends the disciples out. He's going to send them out on a short-term trip. And we're going to continue this over the next couple weeks through the whole rest of Matthew 10. And so we're going to look at the first part of these directions beginning in verse 5. So let's first look at verses 5 to 8. These twelve disciples Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. As I mentioned before, I want you to see here that they are sent out, and we mimic them in the same way. All of us, as disciples of Jesus, are sent out into this world. This is not saying just for the leaders or pastors or elders. I love the pattern of Mark's gospel when he talks about this, where it says, And Jesus appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And it's that idea of being with Jesus, but being sent out by Jesus, that that pattern continues in us today. God calls us into relationship with himself, but also so that we are sent out into the world to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And we see this in these verses. The disciples are to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's just another way to say that God's promised Savior has come in Jesus Christ. And to demonstrate the truth of that statement, they are empowered, verse 8, to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now you might be wondering, why not go to the Gentiles and Samaritans? Why doesn't Jesus love everyone? And let me explain that real quick. Number one, this probably says more about the disciples' readiness to serve Gentiles and Samaritans than it does about Jesus' love for them. Commentators helpfully connect this to Luke chapter 9, where Jesus has to rebuke the disciples when he is rejected by a Samaritan town. And this is their response to Jesus. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So they weren't ready to go to the Samaritans. (laughs) You see, a part of living as a disciple of Jesus is growing in your compassion for the lost and not wanting to call fire down on their heads. This also fits in a salvation history pattern we find in Romans chapter 1, which says it's first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And we see that One, we see it a little bit, we see tastes of it in Jesus' ministry where he does interact with Samaritans and Gentiles. But Matthew's gospel ends with sending the disciples who are now ready to go to the nations, right? So this is not a command that is permanent. But again, it's a part of the disciples maturing in their understanding of who Jesus is. But that leads to the last part of verse 8 there. It's sort of presented as a proverb. You receive without paying, give without pay. Now this coordinates well with what we'll see next as Jesus talks about money. But using the idea of money, he's talking about how we present the gospel to others. Jesus is warning his disciples about a selfishness that will keep them from sharing the good news. We picture getting an amazing gift for free, but then turning to the next person and saying, I know I got this for free, but you need to pay me $1,000 for it. God wants you to be generous in sharing the gospel because in the gospel, he has been generous to you. We have freely received the grace of God. So why would we be stingy with others when God has been so generous to us? But it also connects, like I said, to this idea of money, which is Jesus is sending out. That's the next topic here of, of how do the disciples provide for their needs as they are sent out. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. Acquire no gold, no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tu- nor two tunics, Nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Jesus commands the disciples not to load up on supplies for their mission. Jesus talks about this command later in Luke chapter 22. And this helps us to see that this was not an absolute commandment, but one for that situation. Again, it's a learning opportunity for the disciples. And so Jesus gives a specific command for this specific time to teach them about what it means to be a disciple. That this command in and of itself is part of their training and maturity. They are to rely not on their ability to pack a backpack, but to rely on God's providence and the hospitality of. Of others. As one author writes about this, the disciples needed to learn that the worker is worth his keep and to shun luxury while learning to rely on God's providence through the hospitality of others. So they aren't to take it with you, but wherever town or village they enter, they find out who is worthy and stay there for their needs to be met. So they had to trust that God had placed someone in that city who would be generous with them. One specific lesson disciples of Jesus regularly need to hear is that we are always dependent on God's provision for us. And might I add to that that we are better able to be generous with the needs of others when we understand that God is always providing For our needs, God knew what the original disciples needed. God knows what you need as you live life in this world. And this activity by the disciples shows to us a larger idea that God will always provide. He may not provide in the ways that we think or want, but God always provides for His people. Now, as with the last section, which connected money from the first section to the second section, the last sentence of this section leads us into the next section. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And what is in the last section there is what does it mean to be worthy? So let's turn to verses 12 to 15. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town, that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town." Here is an example of a physical representation of a spiritual reality. The sent out disciples are to go into a town, enter into one of the local homes, and greet it. The next thing that they need to do is see if the house is worthy, and if so, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. So let's first deal with how do you control your peace and how do you get it to return to you. I mean, is this some magical force that you exude that is your peace? Parallel passage in Luke chapter 10 is helpful to us here. It says this, Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. So really, the question is, Will they receive your greeting? Meaning, will they receive you? This is made more clear in verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words house, a person, is worthy if they receive one of Jesus' disciples and the message about Jesus from that disciple. As Jesus will later say in the chapter in Matthew 10, 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. But this also means that if the person or house rejects the disciple, they are rejecting Jesus. If this happened, Jesus instructs the disciples to shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the, that house or town. Now again, this is weird sounding to us that if people don't want you in their house to hear about Jesus, you go and you shake your, the dust off your feet. Again, the commentators are helpful in some historical background to this strange picture. Let me read from one of the commentators. A pious Jew on leaving a Gentile territory might remove from his feet and clothes all the dust of the pagan land now being left behind, thus dissociating himself from the pollution of those lands and the judgment in store for them. For the disciples to do this to Jewish homes and towns would be a symbolic way of saying that the emissaries of Messiah now view those places as pagan, polluted, and liable to judgment. The message to the Jewish towns is clear. It is not enough to be biologically Jewish. If you reject Jesus, you will face judgment. And this is drilled home in the last verse of today's passage, verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, if those names aren't familiar to you, you can read about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. I'll briefly summarize those. Sodom and Gomorrah were physically destroyed for their sin against God. But they have an important place in the biblical narrative in that they continue to be referenced in the Bible as the worst of the worst and recipients of God's judgment. It's sort of similar to our nickname for Las Vegas being Sin City. So feel the weight of Jesus' words. If Sodom and Gomorrah are the worst of the worst, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let me say two things on this. Number one, these words would have been very shocking To the ears of the Jewish people, because no one is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, let alone a Jewish town. Secondly, one of the reasons it will be worse is because the people hearing from the disciples are hearing the rest of the story that Jesus has in fact come, that the Savior has in fact come, and He is here, and He is Jesus. People of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the whole story. But let me take that one step further. How much more you here today who have not just read the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament? The message is clear to reject Jesus is to face the judgment of God, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But the good news is that means the flip side is also true that if you repent of your sins, You believe the words of the original disciples that you will receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. A couple thoughts to close up this morning. Number one, love the diversity of the church. The disciples were real people with real personalities and real differences. We are better together because of our differences. It's also a great witness to the world when we are united to each other, even though there are no other reasons we should love each other other than Jesus. If we just loved people like us, we wouldn't be doing anything spectacular. Love and value each other as the distinct people that God has made each of us. Secondly, we are all disciples who are sent out. There is more to the life of a disciple than just your own life. Just as the original disciples were sent out on this short-term mission trip, so too all disciples of Jesus are sent out into the world to proclaim the kingdom of God. And what Jesus said to them is true for us today. You received without paying, give without pay. You have been saved by grace, so share graciously. All of us are missionaries to this world to share the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, God will provide for you. While what was described here was not a permanent command, it is a good expression that God will always provide for his people. You can go out into this world with the good news of Jesus Christ, and you do not have to be afraid because God sees what you need, And God will provide. And fourthly, echoing the last words of this passage, receive this message. Listen to my words. Repent of your sins and place your personal trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. The miracles of healing and authority over demonic spirits was not the most important part of the mission. Those were pieces of evidence that what they were proclaiming was the truth. And this is true today. If you do not receive these words about Jesus, you will face judgment for your rejection. So let me plead with you to receive this message and to listen to these words. Jesus died and rose again so that all who repent of their sins and place their personal trust in him will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. We, like the original 12 disciples, are to love each other in spite of our differences, and we are to go out together into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. God, that we would love the diversity of the body of Christ. That we would love that there are some people that the only thing in common we have is Jesus. And God, that we would understand your call in our lives to go out into your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would proclaim salvation by your free grace. And that we would warn people From judgment, that you would prepare the hearts of those that we might find, that you would prepare their hearts to receive the words of our message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Green Bank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.